Well, good morning, church. Whether you're here in person or watching, participating with us online, I want you to know that we love you and appreciate you. I love you and appreciate you. Thank you so very much for being part of our worship today. Let me ask you a question, and I, I know that we won't have time for you to really contemplate this question, but I want you to take it really seriously over the next few days. Let me invite you to wrestle with this question. How many lives are you living? How many lives are you living? Or maybe put it another way, how many compartments does your life have? It pains me to think back to my years in high school because I, I realized in high school that I was trying to be an expert at having different lives, living different lives, compartmentalizing my life. The, the person I was at church, the person I was when I was around my church friends and especially the adults at church, that was one person. And, and they looked at me like a, a young leader and I would teach and I would preach and I would read scripture and I would do all of these things when I was with church folk and when I was with my family. But the person I was at school and when I was around other friends with somebody completely different. And I still remember, and I won't go into the details of it because it pains me to think about or talk about, but I still remember where I was and what I was doing when those two worlds sort of collided. And I unintentionally allowed the, the wall that was separating one life from another life, one personality from another personality to intersect. And I let that wall come down and the people on one side saw who I was on the other side. But as I've, I've gone through the last however many years now, I've realized that I'm not the only one that tends to do that. We can be really good at compartmentalizing our life, at living two different lives, or maybe three different lives, or four different lives, and who we are at school, or at work, or who we are when we're with certain groups of people, or who we are when we're all by ourselves and there's nobody else around, and then who we are with our family, or who we are at church. They all can be different kinds of people, and we live one life over here and a different life over there, and maybe we don't even realize, maybe we don't realize how disjointed our life is, and we just think, well, you know, I, I'm not trying to be bad when I'm over here. I'm not trying to do bad things when I'm over there. I, that's just, this is just my church life, and I do church things here, and this is my religious life, and then over here, this is my secular life, and this is what I do in my secular life. See, we're really good at labeling things like that to compartmentalize our life, aren't we? We say physical and spiritual. We say religious and secular. We say sacred and common. We have these ways of labeling things to say this aspect of my life or this compartment of my life or this part of my life is secular. This is the secular part of my life. This is the physical part of my life. This is the material part of my life. This isn't the spiritual part of my life. Do we see how we tend to do that? But over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the day of Pentecost. And you, you can't embrace the story and the reality of Pentecost and continue to compartmentalize your life. You can't embrace what happened at Pentecost and how Pentecost changed things 
and continue to compartmentalize your life or continue to live distinct, disjointed, separated lives. You can't do both. You have to decide, am I going to embrace the reality of what happened at Pentecost or am I going to continue to live compartmentalized lives? So if you don't remember or you're not familiar with the day of Pentecost, the the first part of our lesson this morning is going to be a whole lot of introduction. Because I I want us, by the time we get to Acts chapter 2, to kind of see what's happening. To see and to recognize the sights and the sounds of Pentecost and recognize and realize what Luke is telling us about the new reality. Now that Jesus is enthroned in heaven, what is happening on the earth? What is happening with his people? Now, the day of Pentecost was a, a feast. It was a festival that was celebrated every year by the Israelite people, by the Jewish people. It came 50 days after Passover. So you have Passover, and then 50 days later, you have Pentecost, right? Passover and then Pentecost. And you remember the story, or maybe you don't know the story about Passover, but that's when, that's when the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, And the angel of the Lord passed over the Israelites' homes when they put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And so every year thereafter, they celebrated and remembered the Passover, how God passed over their homes and spared their lives and rescued them from slavery. And after the Passover, after that first Passover, they crossed through the Red Sea. And after a short time, they eventually arrived at Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, that's where God showed up and gave them the law and made covenant with the people of Israel. And and so the day of Pentecost that comes 50 days after Passover, it was a, a festival and a feast to celebrate the harvest. But eventually, eventually the people of Israel also celebrated God showing up at Mount Sinai. And they celebrated God giving them the law at Mount Sinai. And I think in order for us to appreciate what happens on this specific Pentecost, we have to remember what happened at Mount Sinai. So if you have your Bible, we're going to start in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 18. Now again, this this is the people of Israel. They had just come out of Egyptian slavery where they had been enslaved for hundreds of years. And they've come to Mount Sinai and God shows up. And God shows up in a big way. It says, Exodus 19 and verse 18, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And then a few chapters later in Exodus 24 and verse 17, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. We might think back to what happens at the beginning of the book of Exodus too, when God shows up with Moses. Do you remember when God showed up with Moses? Where did he show up? In a burning bush. Remember, there's the bush and the bush is on fire, but it's not consumed. And so when God shows up, very often God's presence is depicted as and painted as and shown as fire, this powerful image. And then later, when the people of Israel followed God's directions and they built a a mobile temple, right? The mobile temple, the tent temple, the tabernacle. Look at Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day, till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and by fire in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So again, we see this, this picture, right? The glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle, the presence and the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle and this cloud of smoke or this cloud of fire that is over the tabernacle as a sign, as a symbol to say, God lives here. God lives here. In a sense, God lives here. We understand that God's glory can't really live in a, in a house made with hands, in a tabernacle. The fullness of God, the, the majesty of God, as big and huge as God is, he can't fit into a tiny house. But in a sense, the presence of God lives here. This is God's tent. God is present here. And this fire is a way of saying this is where God's presence dwells. This is God's holy place. This is God's tabernacle. God's presence is here. And then later on, after the people got to the, the land of Israel and they established themselves, eventually Solomon built a what? temple, right? A, a permanent temple for God. And so Solomon builds this temple. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 5, starting in verse 13. It says, the house of the Lord was filled with the, with the cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And we see the same type of language that we saw at Sinai, and the same type of language that we saw at the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord is filling this house and God's presence is there. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, I mean, we, we kind of just have to stop there for a second and appreciate the amazing nature of all of this, right? The amazing nature of God calling these enslaved people out of Egypt, making them his special people, saying to them, I could pick anybody in the world. I could pick any group in the world. I could pick any nation in the world. I could pick any family in the world, but I've picked your family. And he calls Israel out and makes them his special people. And then he moves in with them. And he dwells in a tent with his people. That's an amazing kind of God, isn't it? An amazing kind of God. The God who created all things, the one true living God says, I not only want you to worship me, that'd be one thing if God says, I want you to worship me, I want you to serve me, I want you to obey me, but God says to his people, I want to be 
with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to move in with you. I want to be in your presence. I want you to know my presence. And so this this tent that's right in the middle of their encampment and everywhere they go, it's filled with the glory of God. And his presence is on it and in it. And then later when this, this permanent temple is built, God blesses that with his presence and he fills it with his glory and his presence is on it and in it to say, I want to be with my people. What an amazing God of love this is who not only wants to be worshipped by his people and served by his people and have his people obey him, but he wants to be with them. He wants to take up residence with them. He wants to dwell in their midst. He wants them to know and experience his presence so that no matter what happens, no, no matter what happens, no matter how big the enemies are, no matter how scary they are, no matter how many swords they have, no matter how, no matter how many horses they have, no matter how big and tough they are, they can say, the, the true and living God lives in our house. The true and living God lives with us. We have God with us. We don't have to be afraid of anything. We don't have to trust in anything else. We have God's presence. It's amazing, isn't it? But then, of course, we know that the people of Israel, they broke covenant with God and turned their back on God and trusted in other nations and empires and gods. And so the presence of God went away for a time. And the story of Pentecost is the story of Jesus being enthroned in heaven. We talked about that last week. That in the ascension, Jesus wasn't abandoning his people. Jesus was promising to accompany his people and empower his people and equip his people. But then we see that come to fruition at Pentecost. Look at Acts chapter 2. Remembering the sights and the sounds, probably the smells of Sinai and the tabernacle and the temple. And Luke writes in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, if we were to go back and look at chapter 1, say, well, what does does Luke mean they were all together in this place? Who's the all? The all could be the 11 original apostles plus Matthias, so the new 12. So maybe he's talking about the 12 apostles. Or he's also told us that there's actually 120 disciples of Jesus right now, 120 followers of Jesus who are just just sort of hanging out and waiting, right? Jesus has ascended back into heaven, and now for over a week, which doesn't sound like very long, for about 10 days, they've just been waiting, waiting. What's next? When, When is the kingdom coming? When is the power coming? When are the promises coming? Who are we? What is it that we're supposed to be doing? What is it that we're supposed to be? Who are we and where are we headed and what is our mission? And so they've just been waiting, the 12 and these 120. So I don't know whether it's it's all 120 or whether it's just the 12, but they're, they're there and it's the day of Pentecost. And again, celebrating what God has done in the harvest 
and also celebrating what God did at Mount Sinai and how God has shown up with them. So it makes sense that the sights and the sounds of Sinai, God showing up in smoke and in power and in fire would be maybe at the top of their mind. Look at verse 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house that they were, where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, the word wind here, both in Greek and in Hebrew, so in their mind, the word wind is connected with the word for breath, but also the word for spirit. And so there's this sound of this mighty rushing wind. God is breathing on them. The spirit of God, the wind of God, the breath of God is is rumbling the house. And then these tongues of fire or pieces of fire that kind of shaped like the human tongue, right? They're coming to dwell, not just on the house. I mean, that would be one thing, wouldn't it? For, for God to say, I'm going to take up residence in this house, whatever house they were meeting in. They're meeting probably in the upper room, and they're in this house. And for God to say, I'm going to take up residence in this house. But the fire of the Lord doesn't dwell over the, the building, It dwells over the people, over each one of them. Just like the fire came down at Sinai, just like the fire came down at the tabernacle, just like the fire came down at the temple, just like the glory of the Lord moved into those houses and into those places, now the glory of the Lord is moving into these people. And the fire of the Lord is over their head as a symbol to say the presence of God, the spirit of God, the glory of God is moving into a new temple. Not not a temple that's made of fabric and poles like the tent. Not not a temple like the, the temple that was made of stones and bricks like the temple, but into living, breathing stones into the people who follow Jesus. These followers of Jesus are now becoming God's brand new temple. Isn't it amazing how this really follows the picture of the Exodus story, doesn't it? God sets his people free from slavery. The the Passover, the, the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the angel of the Lord has passed over them and they've been set free and they've, they've passed through the water, and they've come into the promised land, and the king is enthroned, and the Spirit of God is taking up residence in the temple. Only this time, the temple's not made of bricks and stone and mortar. The temple is made of flesh and blood. Their own bodies have become the temple, the dwelling place of God. It says in verse 4, in case it wasn't already clear, verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We'll talk about these other languages in which they began to speak, but let's just, let's just sit with this reality for just a second. That the Spirit of God 
The glory of God, the presence of God is taking up residence in a new temple. And you could say, well, you know, Wes, I mean, that was, that was in the apostles, or, or maybe it was in those 120 people. God was taking up his residence there or giving them his presence or filling them with his Holy Spirit. But what does that have to do with us? I'm glad you asked, because that's what Paul would go on to say to all of the churches that he preached to and wrote to, isn't it? That it, it wasn't just the apostles that got to be the temple of God. It wasn't just the first century church that got to be the temple of God. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and he, he said, In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You, y'all, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do we realize what's, what's happening at Pentecost and what has continued to happen every generation thereafter as you and you and you and you and you, as all y'all, as we all decided, I'm going to follow Jesus and we were baptized into Christ, we became the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, there's no... There's no tongue of fire over our head as a symbol to say this is where God's spirit dwells, but we have this testimony and we accept it by faith that we are God's temple. We are God's temple. We are the place in which God dwells. His glory, his presence, his spirit has filled us. This is where God dwells. Not, not just in this building, but in these people. Now, what are the implications of that? Because that's really what I want us to think about. What are the implications of saying we are the temple of the Holy Spirit? If we are the temple of God, if we are the temple of God, then every aspect of our life is sacred and spiritual. Right? If we really are the temple of God, then there are no compartments of our life where we say, this part of my life isn't sacred. This part of my life isn't spiritual. This part of my life doesn't belong to Jesus. This part of my life isn't penetrated by the Holy Spirit. We don't get to say, I, I'm, not, I'm not acting as a Christian right now. This part of my life is off limits. This part of my life is walled off to the Holy Spirit. If our bodies... If our bodies are the temple of God, if his presence and his spirit has taken up residence in us, then that means every aspect of our life is both spiritual and sacred. That means when you go to work, whatever job you do, you are doing sacred work. You are doing spiritual work, or at least you should be doing sacred work, spiritual work. When you go to school, your training in school is sacred and spiritual. If you're a new parent, I, I always like to encourage new parents, but if you're a new parent and you spend like all your time, you feel like every moment of your day is either changing a diaper or feeding a kid, your work is sacred 
and spiritual. If you've got teenagers and you're raising your teenagers, your work is sacred and spiritual. If you're taking care of your aging parents, your work is sacred and spiritual. If you're loving your neighbor as yourself and you're caring for your neighbors in the name of Jesus, your work is sacred and spiritual. If we are the temple of God, then every aspect of our life is sacred and spiritual. But there's a flip side to that as well, isn't it? That also means that our sin defiles and destroys the temple of God. Just like no Jewish person would have, would have uh, even contemplated going into the temple. No, no Jewish person that took their relationship with God seriously would have imagined going into the temple and doing something in the temple that would defile the temple. They, no, anathema. God forbid, I couldn't ever do that in the temple. This is where God's presence is. This is where God's spirit is. This is where God lives. And now in the spirit, God has taken up residence in y'all, in us, in your very body. And if that's true, if our body is the temple of God, not only is every aspect of our life sacred and spiritual, it also means that our sin defiles and destroys the temple. That means for Paul, and he would use this so many times when he wrote to the church, and he would say things like, your idolatry. When you, when you pair yourself with or partner yourself with idols, you are defiling the temple because your body is the temple. And church, that means for us, our covetousness, our greed, our materialism, our patriotic and nationalistic idols, whatever kind of idols we have, whatever kind of things we exalt, whatever kind of things we, we put too highly, not only is it unhealthy, but we can defile the temple. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. Not on Sundays, we're the temple of the living God. Not on Wednesday nights, we're temple of the living God. Not when we read our Bible, we're the temple of the living God. Not when we say our prayers, we're temple of the living God. But we are the temple of the living God every moment of every day. And that changes the way we do everything. Sexual immorality, Paul would say. This is... This is why it's not just not healthy, not a good decision, but he says it's a sin against the temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. It's also why division in the church is so repulsive to God that when we're divided with one another and we fight with one another and we don't forgive one another and we, we go away from each other and we walk away from one another and we don't work out our differences, this is a sin not just against each other, that's one thing, to sin against each other, but it's bigger than that. 
It's bigger than that. Our petty disagreements that, that separate us and divide us, they're bigger than just what's going on between you and me. If you're harboring resentment against your brother or sister in Christ, if you're gossiping about your brother or sister in Christ, if you're slandering your brother or sister in Christ, you're defiling the temple of God. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, do you not know that you are God's temple, that y'all are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you, plural, y'all. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Do we see how Pentecost changes everything? It's one thing for us to say, God moved into a new temple. It's one thing for us to say, God's presence isn't just in a building or in a tent or on a mountain. God's presence is within his people. It's one thing for us to think about that in the abstract and to admit that and acknowledge that in the abstract. But what does that look like in reality? It looks like us acknowledging that if we are in Christ, if we're followers of Jesus, if we've been baptized into him, if we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, then we are God's temple. And if we are God's temple, then every aspect of our life is sacred and spiritual. And our sin defiles and destroys God's temple. It means we, we look at Monday different and Tuesday different and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday different, not just Sunday different. He doesn't just come to change our weekend. He doesn't even come to just change our, our religion. He comes to change everything in our life, every aspect of our life. So there's no more compartmentalizing things. There's no more physical and spiritual, sacred and common, religious and secular. For us, for those who are in Christ Jesus, Every aspect of our life, every aspect of our life needs to become sacred and spiritual. Recognizing that our sin, our sin isn't just a sin against ourselves and it's not just a sin against God. It's not just a sin against each other. It's a sin against what God has made us as his people and that is his dwelling place by the Spirit. We're going to sing a song in just a second, and then we're going to put up a, a slide on the screen that gives you a number of ways, whether you're here in person or you're watching online, that you can respond. But again, as we said last week, our response, the invitation that Jesus extends to us isn't limited to this hour right now. It's an invitation that we respond to every moment of every day. Will we be and will we live as the temple of the Holy Spirit. No matter where you've been or what you've done, no matter how you've lived your life up to this point, in Christ you can find forgiveness and purification, sanctification. He can cleanse out all of the other stuff that shouldn't be there, all of the sin and all of the defilement, and take that as far as the east is from the west and put his spirit in you. But you have to decide that you will receive that gift. In baptism, yes. And then every day thereafter, deciding I will accept my place, my position, 
the invitation to which I've been called to be a temple of God's Holy Spirit. And if we can help you with that decision in any way, now's a great opportunity to respond. As together we stand and sing.